My name is Ken Gamble. I'm one of the few Canadians that are here, and I'm very glad that you welcomed me to your beautiful country. In fact, I was quite shocked when my wife looked at the program. She said, wow, it's amazing at a conference that they have as many speakers as they will have people. How many people do you expect in each room? About two or three. I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into, but it is so exciting to be here. And you think of the numbers of hours of manpower that have gone into developing this program. Hats go off to the organizers. But it is so exciting to be here. It's almost like the Urbana of medical missions. And uh, I must say that I'm totally thrilled with the privilege of even being here, and let alone sharing what has become a part of my heart's passion. I went into medicine with a very, very narrow view of what Christian doctors would become, and that was a medical missionary. And I started my career as a medical missionary and then had a very distinct sense that God was calling me from that. That was very, very hard for me to accept because how could you have spent all this time dreaming of being a physician, going overseas, and then not just being called back to Canada? That would have been failure enough. But to be called back to Canada to live in Toronto at a place of the least needed spot for physicians. I went to a party at a house, and there was a missionary doctor and his wife. And she started to scold me, and at first I thought she was joking, but it wasn't long before I realized she was serious. And so I not only had that sense that God had called me out of missions, which is what I thought he'd called me to, but he called me to Toronto, one of the most desolate parts of the country from the standpoint of where a missionary would go. And then on top of that, I was being reprimanded for being obedient to that call. And so it was tough. I had two patients a day when I started in Toronto. I remember the day I got very excited because I got paged because somebody needed me. Having left Africa, where I had 100 patients a day, I had a ward of 40 people in my TB unit. I had an obstetrical unit where we serviced the needs of 30,000 women in the community. And I came to Toronto, where I had two patients a day, and I thought I'd missed my calling. But I was called, in a sense, because of what we talked about last night, and that's this multiplication effect. As while I was overseas, I would hear people say, why should we see doctors in Canada or in the United States? Because when we breathe that we've had some problems, their first reaction is, you've stayed there long enough. It's time for somebody else to go. And that isn't why we went. We were looking for help. Those were the echoes in my mind when I accepted my position at Missionary Health Institute. And my goal was very simple. If one person will go back overseas because of my involvement in their care, then I've at least replaced myself. But perchance, if in the course of my life two go back, then I've doubled my output. And so with that simple math, I accepted the call to Missionary Health Institute in Toronto. I begin today with a bit of trepidation because I have been in settings where mental health has sort of been the side runner and, in some respects, the least spiritual dimension 
of health care that we could give. I've mused about that. And I think sometimes it's because we live with a dichotomy. We live with a dichotomy where as evangelicals, we think it's great to proclaim the gospel. But it's the liberal Christians that are doing the social work. Why that dichotomy ever existed, I don't know. But the same thing exists in the whole area of caring for our soul. We live with three dichotomies, so it can be now a trichotomy, where we have our spiritual beings, we have our psychological beings, and then somehow tucked in there is our physical beings, but we have them all parceled out. And so a person by the name of T.S. Eliot came to my rescue. And he says, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood, the message we heard this morning. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. This is out of his poem, Ash Wednesday, the first poem that he wrote after he became a Christian. And so today I would like to start with a prayer. Teach us to pray, which is the title of my talk. Teach us to care, rather. And somehow, wrapped up in the nucleus of that, is the idea of asking God what the disciples ask God, and that is, teach us to pray. Our God and Father, we bow before you with a sense of awe and appreciation for who you are. And in some respects, being called into a caring ministry is like Moses, who was called to a place where he said, I recognize this to be holy ground. For it is when we move into the heart of people that we sense that preciousness and the holiness of who you are, that which you have allowed to be released through man to reflect your glory. God, help us to catch a glimpse of that today as we ponder some of the challenges that face us in our ministry ahead. We thank you in your name. Amen. There are three questions that I want to put before you as statements, and hopefully by the time we finish, we will have some sense of where we're going, because today I'm only giving an overview of mental health. Dr. Jared Richardson tomorrow is going to be talking about some of the more specifics of the treatment of depression and anxiety. But I want to set a framework to help us with the context of where mental health issues fits in the whole discipline of being a missionary. So I'm going to propose to you that mental health risk appraisal is an important part of caring. The question is why. The next statement that I'm going to put before you is that mental health challenges are going to persist no matter what we do. The question is at what cost? The third is a statement that all of us are called to care. The question is how? Now, those of us who've been here for the conference cannot escape the fact that cross-cultural missions are associated with inherent risks. There isn't a person in medicine who would disagree with that. And the second thing that we observe after being here 
is that there's well-motivated volunteers and expatriates who have a skewed perception of mental health risk. I don't know if any of you saw Perry's uh, gaffe the other night. Did you see that? And then the third point is, and he can't remember. Now, Newt Gingrich this morning had a very class act in ABC. They said, what do you think of that gaffe? And he says, you know, I know him very well. And he says, I consider myself to be a good debater, but I can see myself in that situation. All of us have been there. And when I was there, I thought that could have been me. But many of us don't think that that could have been me when we're involved in missions, when we go with this enthusiasm that is only emphasized as we come to a conference such as this. So to try and bring a little bit of context to this, I put a short little video clip together of people at various phases of their life journey. And then for our case study, I'm going to pick up on one of them today and we'll try and move through some of the principles. And hopefully we'll be able to hear it. Let's see what happens. I was a typical flower child in the 60s, and yet I had a good education. I worked as a physiotherapist in Ontario for a little while. I was very restless, thinking there had to be something more. God began to work in my heart over the last 11 years uh, to be involved in work in Cambodia, in particular in the area of investing in child sex slaves. Well, I've been a missionary with the Christian Missionary Alliance. I'll be going in 27 years overseas. On my way to work every day, I saw a sign that said, Jesus saves. I had no idea what that meant, and I started asking around and was told there was a church behind the sign. So I walked in one Sunday and listened to the It was like we were at a great distance as far as health concerns of the mission towards the missionaries go. Now it's, it's like this is a very important part of you, and we want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to help you. So it's from just about nothing to just about everything. So now you get a little bit of a snapshot of the whole dimension of caring. And there's a lot buried in what they're saying. But we're just going to pick up the thread on one individual, and that is the female that was threaded through this story, the one who was working in Cambodia. I don't know if any of you have worked in Cambodia. I don't know if any of you have ever worked in the kind of environments that they were working in. But they went to be with the poorest of the poor. But let's back up because I made a statement earlier that health risk appraisal is important as a part of the caring system. And so I want you to remove anything you know about the end of her story and just for one minute talk to your neighbor. And I want you to pick out three risk factors that you would see from the snippets of her story, and I'll give you two minutes to do that. You shouldn't need more than two minutes to pick up. And then I want some feedback from the audience. Because you're in the position now of being the one who's doing the health appraisal for this person who's made an application to the mission, and she wants to go overseas. She wants to serve in a tough environment, and yet you saw where she came from. For those of you who are old enough to know what a hippie was, she was a hippie. 
For those of you who know about the dress of the hippie, that was a hashish belt around her waist in that picture that you had. So you had a minute or two to think. I want you to put up the risk factors that you see as her story unfolded. Yes? Hey, might have had some chemical use. You're being very gracious. Yes, okay, you're very subtle. You're a good missionary. Okay, who else do we have? What else have we noticed? What else would you guess? Use your imagination. Use your personal experience. Isolation. Absolutely. What else do you pick up? Idealism. Idealism. Whoa, and what do you think the idealism did to her? Hey, unrealistic expectations. What do you think her home life was like? Uh, Comfortable and uncomfortable. How could you be comfortable and uncomfortable at the same time? Yeah, well, let's think about that. She didn't know who Jesus was. That's absolutely true. Comfortable in that she had a good education and she's a physiotherapist. Uncomfortable. What do you think drove her to Israel and Jordan to live like a hippie? What do you think the home environment was like? Broken Broken relationships. Staggering number of broken relationships in that home environment. These people that wear the hashish belts and headed off to Israel in the Middle East weren't coming from secure, loving, tender, cared-for homes. What else do you see? Seeking love and belonging. Hey, seeking love. See, you guys are good. And it's amazing. You're drawing that out of experience. You have seen it before. What else do you notice? She looked like she might have a real arty personality with the red glasses. <laughs> hey, you picked that up. <laughs> and she still hasn't lost it. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> hey, now you're cooking. Now this is wonderful. Because this is beautiful. Because what we have seen and what we're hearing is that you're absolutely right on track. In that she has this background information. She's emerged from a drug culture, risk-taking behavior, rigid in some ways, resisting authority in other ways, radical behavior, and she's a new Christian. Now, when you see new Christians coming across the ticker tape who are applying to missions, That's a risk factor. As you think, whoa, I wonder who they are. I wonder why they're going. I wonder what it's going to be like when they get there. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen them? I'm sure that some of you are mature enough to have seen them. But we started to pick up on some other things at the end. And I love it. Because on the other side, we have somebody who's countercultural. We have somebody who's been able to withstand some hardship. We have somebody who's resourceful. We have somebody who's tenacious. And you know something? She has a new faith in Christ. Now here we had it as a risk factor, and now I have it as an attribute. But she had that vibrancy that comes from this newfound faith, and for her, it was one of her strengths. So now we're talking about screening, and... Jared Richardson has wrestled with me for years for that horrible word because we use it in medical circles to screen for colon cancer and cervical cancer and breast cancer. 
And he says, it doesn't fit in this part of the world. We're looking at a risk appraisal because the idea of screening means that you're either good or bad. And many, many missions. How many of you who have been in full-time missions had to do some form of psychological screening before you could go overseas? We see about a third of the room. For many years, they used it as a yes or no answer. But the question is, did it work as a yes or no answer? But the bigger question I started to ask is, what are we seeing? So I was doing one after another of these, and I would see how sick people were when they came back, and I would see the literature, but nobody talked about what they're like before they left. So I wanted to look. And I looked at 200 applicants that I knew had gone, a standard the protocol so that we wouldn't just pick the favorite ones that looked either really bad or really good. So these are randomly selected, and 26% of them had what we call sub-threshold symptoms. Have you ever looked in the dsm 4 and you see all these symptoms? You say, yeah, I got one of those. The next day, you've got two of those. The next day, you might have three, but by the following day, you might be back to one. Is anybody can relate to me at that level? Okay, most of you can, but most of you are like the rest of us. We don't want to admit it. So we fluctuate. And so the dsm 4 is a help because it distills us into only making the diagnosis when the constellation comes together. But we don't know where these people are. And there's sleep problems. I read studies that 24% come back with sleep study problems, but 16% left with them. So it's not all because of their international journey. These are what we call risk factors. And they do not guarantee that this person is going to have problems. But I can tell you from the follow-up research we've done that more problems emerge in that group than emerge in the group that doesn't have any. 8% had a history of a mood disorder that had been diagnosed, treated, and they were in remission. 8% had a mood disorder that wasn't fully in remission when they applied to a mission setting. What about associated risk factors? If we look at that, we recognize that the incidence of depression in people who had other risk factors in the background was clearly disproportionate to the total number of people, and that too matches the literature. What am I saying? When people go overseas, they mirror the community they're coming out of. There isn't something magic about the people who choose to go overseas that says that we have worked through all of these issues and now we're ready to go overseas. But then the other half of the story for this woman is the resiliency factor, and I'm glad you started to pick up on that. And this is a new area because resiliency is a huge part of whether or not people make successful transmissions, transitions cross-culturally. And resiliency doesn't have to be a big library of what you have available to you by way of coping resources. My colleague who's an expert in this area says, if you have one key strength of resiliency, whether that be your sense of humor or whether that be your ability to draw appreciation from music or nature, one is all it takes to be successful in moving yourself from a period of being under tremendous stress into a period of resolution. So, 
The truth of the matter is people go overseas. And they're at various stages of readiness. I love this one because I was in Cambodia and out of the corner of my eye I saw this motorcycle going down the road with three people and a woman sitting there with her ivy pole in hand. And I thought, there's somebody who left the hospital a little bit too early. And I'm sure that if we did a poll in the room, how many, let's do it. You don't have to tell us who they were. Have you ever been overseas and, and have worked with a missionary that went before they're ready? I see a very small number of hands. That either means we're dealing with a very inexperienced audience or you're being very kind to the people you have worked with because they do exist. And when I looked at our numbers, about 60% were what we would call normal in the sense that they had no risk factors. And then there were some shades of risk and about 23% actually were going with some unresolved issues. And so they had their IV pole in hand as they were going overseas. So let's take us back to our objective now. We talked initially about these risk appraisals. And obviously the mission only wants this blue dot. And you who are working overseas and are tired of people messing with your life because they're having some psychological challenges when they get there, you only want to receive people in that blue dot. But I have news for you. You take that blue dot away and you're going to still have that problem because that blue dot, when it gets overseas, so you've sent them away, is going to emerge and you're going to have the same spectrum once you get there. This is an inevitable outcome. And so those of us who have spent our life dreaming of the day that we can eliminate mental health issues from the call to missions, are living a life of delusion. Mental health issues, my second point, are here and they're going to be here to stay. The question is, what is the cost of the mental health issues? I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think about who has an IV pole still connected to them, and their readiness isn't quite there yet. Because we shouldn't be blind to the fact that some aren't ready. This is an an interesting study, because the black dots show somebody who's recovered from depression and now have no residual symptoms. And the likelihood of them having a relapse whether it be dysthymia, whether it be a major depression, whether it be minor depression, they will go for a long time without a relapse. But if somebody is going overseas and they still have residual symptoms in their recovery from depression, they still have their IV pole in hand. And we have to be very intentional about how we care for them and how we integrate them into the community Or perhaps we're doing them a favor if we say, let's wait till the IV can be disconnected. And let's let you recover a little bit longer before we put you at risk. And the second issue is, how long has it been since you've had this depressive episode? 
And why am I picking on depression? You will see from Jared's talk tomorrow. It is one of the most common of the diagnosable mental health conditions. 72% of people with depression will experience a relapse or a recurrence within five years. Here are the predictors. Female, single more than married, length of the depression episode pre-treatment, and the number of depressive episodes. But, after five years, the slate is clean. Like those of you who have driven too fast and you got so many points against you on your driver's license, if you're good for a while, the slate will be washed clean and you can go back to driving normally. So now this person gets overseas. So I want you to tell me, what is it like now? You've been there. I want you to think back to the day you went there and you have all these things in your mind and you have all your ideals and what are you going to say when you get to this street corner? Let's hear it. Come on, you've been there. What are you going to say? Come on. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? And then what do you think of the people? What's wrong with them? You're right. You see, you're too shy. What's wrong with them? They're horrible drivers. Where did they learn how to drive? And you get to the mission hospital you're going to work in, and what are you going to say? Where's their equipment? What are they doing here? My first day in Africa, and I sat down and I wrote a script. I got this slip of paper back. It said OS. I said, what does OS mean? They said, out of stock. I said, out of stock? What do you mean, out of stock? Penicillin, the cheapest drug. And here I was, displaying what you might be thinking at that street corner. And I thought, CAT scans at home. We're worried about the cost of CAT scan with penicillin. That was awful. I remember I was thinking I was going to be a hero. And my first patient, guess what he had? Back pain. Back pain from Saskatchewan, where everybody farms. That's all we saw was back pain. And here I thought I was going to Africa to see something wonderful, and they had back pain. <laughs> so the classical that we know about is what's this? What do you know that as? Has anybody heard of the U-curve? The U-curve was actually coined in about 1957. Nobody has ever disputed it. Nobody's ever proven it but many people who work cross-culturally agree with it. Like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Stages of Dying, you go through that bump at the beginning where you just think everybody's stupid, nobody's running the show right, I don't know what's wrong with the administrator of this hospital, why can't they get it right? You go through that phase, and then somehow you kind of get used to it. And then you have to come home, and you go through another phase. And so they call that the U-curve. But most of us, when we're overseas, we go through these kind of phases where some days are better than other days and it's horribly stressful and then they give us a day off, like the guy said in the session before, and you kind of accommodate, but you kind of never get back to the zero point. But that's okay because some of that is maturity and you're moving towards maturity. And then sometimes something really bad happens and we get post-traumatic stress disorder 
and we don't recover from that. And that tale goes on and on and on for a long time. And it does that because we're not in control of what happens to us. So we start our journey with this sense of empowerment, with this sense of enthusiasm, and it's the other guy that's going to get sick. And then we get into an area where the police force are a little bit more aggressive than we're used to. Loneliness. In an environment where the good and the bad are all tumbled together. Some of us unfortunate enough to be in a war zone. And the process of healing starts to take place. Now there's three ways that I'm just going to touch on so briefly. And the one is some of the protective stress mechanisms that we have. Now, who is brave enough? If you weren't brave enough to admit your mistake in the first place, you're not going to be brave enough to admit that you had a protective way of dealing with stress. But is there anybody brave enough? This is supposed to be interactive, and I'll be brave enough if you won't be. You see, here I went. Yeah, Jared. Sleep. Absolutely. Sleep is, I think, God's best therapeutic agent. The next one might be exercise. I toggle back and forth between which of those two I think is the best. But sleep and exercise to me are God's antidepressant. But there's others. Some, huh? Laughter. Absolutely. Laughter is fantastic. And if you can learn to laugh at yourself, as Perry's learning how to do, it's even better. Worship, fantastic. Worship, moving into a place where you can experience that relationship with God again. And then the next thing, I don't know if any of you have seen missionaries who <coughs> practice self-therapy. But I saw this great clinic in India. It was absolutely amazing. And I wanted to go there. Total cure of every disease. Jaundice, piles, cough, gastric, kidney stones, hotness, nightfall, sexless, tiredness, and the list goes on. But many will dabble in areas because they don't want to seek help. Have you ever seen that? That there are some who privatize their feelings and they don't want to extend themselves to a caring community. And so we get numbers like this. This comes out of the International Society of Travel Medicine, Peace Corps Volunteers. 48% diarrhea, everybody will agree with that. Even at this conference, I hear that is true. Respiratory illnesses, even at this conference, I hear that is true. Injury, skin diseases, 4%. Psychosocial, 4%. Now, we talked about the cost before. 4%. 4 against all of that looks pretty small. Have any of you ever lived with somebody who's going through that? I see some nodding heads. What is it like? What are these first conditions like? How long does the diarrhea last? 48 hours. Till you get modium, four hours. Three days, five days, it's gone. Respiratory illness, how long does that last? Five days, ten. Tiredness for a month. How long does these last? Life, months, years. What about the heartache? What about the disruption? And so here we have a derailment. Here we have somebody who had to come home 
Did you hear what she said? It felt like my feet were in cement. And they were in cement. She got caught with a double anxiety disorder. She had both agoraphobia and claustrophobia. Now imagine her getting onto an airplane from Cambodia to Toronto. And that flight is 15 hours long across the ocean. She can't go anywhere. She was scared to death of getting on an airplane. And she's stuck in a country where she can't get good medical care. Can you imagine being in that position? And so we had risk factors. But also we had 25 years of an exemplary missionary career. And so she came home. But imagine now what it's like to come home. Imagine what it's like to come back into this community. Because she was a marvelous speaker. There was nobody that could command an audience like her, but she couldn't speak. She couldn't talk. She couldn't read her Bible. And she was tough. It was tough. Because she'd go to church, and you wouldn't believe some of the things people would say to her at church that depreciated where she was at in her journey because they could not understand. Now, can you imagine the cost of somebody who's given their all and have come back and are shriveled up into nothing as a human being? And so she stayed for three years. Just this year, she's starting to emerge. Now, I want you to show you something that will help you appreciate the cost. Those of you who can switch your mind into odds ratios, we spend millions of dollars helping people get ready to go overseas with anti-malarial drugs and with vaccines that are absolutely useless. And... There are some that are good, by the way, hepatitis, yellow fever, sure. But we spend millions on that, and we've put very, very little into the mental health dimension. Look at the odds ratio of all these diseases that are coming back into geosentinel clinics around the world, and they're almost nothing. Vectors, ingestion, contact, environment, and look at psychosocial. Those who are there longer than six months, an odds ratio of 2.8, and you break it down and you see that as you move into depression, an odds ratio of 3, odd ratio of stress, 5.7. Jared Richard is going to be talking about that tomorrow. Fatigue, 3. The risk factors for long term, the cost shows up on the psychosocial side. We put all of our money into the prevention of malaria and a few vaccine-preventable diseases. We have 20 years at the International Society of Travel Medicine talking about these things, and only this year had a mental health track. The cost is tremendous. It's not just for the people who went bad. The odds ratio that a stressful event is going to precipitate your first bout of depression is 10 And how can you move into an international environment and not experience a stressful event? That means that what we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. We're not seeing the iceberg. We're seeing the tip of the iceberg. Now that shows up in one more study, and then I'm going to be finished. These are the incidences, as near as I could tell from the literature. The Geosentinel Group, 4%. Interhealth, our colleagues in England, 
1.8% came back with depression. Missionary Health Institute, 5.3%. Peace Corps volunteers, 4%. Debbie Lovell's research, 40%. Now, what is wrong with Debbie's research that she's so far out of line? It's because of how she did her study. She did a retrospective study of expats when they came back and had them reflect on their journey with an understanding that she wanted to know how they viewed the term of service that they had. And 40% estimated that at some point along their journey, they had an experience that would have qualified as a diagnosis of depression. And we're seeing 4%, and we're seeing 5%. And it brings us to another issue when we think of cost, and that is the unmet need for treatment. This is showing up. This isn't a missionary study. This is a study of people across the United States who had home interviews using the WHO criteria for mental health disorder. And in the course of the time that they spent interviewing all of these people, they recognized that 50% of the mental health challenges are left unmet. 50%. Then the question is, we understand this from the standpoint of our risk appraisal. We all probably by now should agree that no matter what we do, there are going to be mental health challenges. The issue is how do we care for them? How do we care for them? And who cares for them? There is a man by the name of Baron von Hugels. Anybody ever heard of him? I was only introduced to him because one of my spiritual mentors is Eugene Peterson. He quoted him a lot, so I thought I'd better find out what he said. He says, to be Christian is to care. To be Christian is to care. Christianity taught us to care. And so somehow, inherently, all of us are responsible. The issue is how. And I've mused about this idea. Why is it that we shun this whole understanding? Why is it that we back away from it? And I think there's two reasons. One of it is we're a little bit afraid. A little bit afraid because deep inside we know what the cost is. But I think there's another dimension to it, and that is sometimes how we care. Not that we care, how we care. I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of being made into a project. But there's something wrong with the way we've been trained in our North American culture. And part of it grows out of our nihilistic worldview. It developed with Nietzsche many years ago, but it's crept into the system to the point that we all accept it now. And what happens when somebody comes in sick? What is the most important thing at the room at that time? Their sickness. Their sickness stands up like a sore thumb, and everything else is laid waste around that. Going back to Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. And in that environment where the sickness is all that we see, we become the caregiver. And we eventually 
transform that person and somehow on top of that we become the God that they're serving. And we've reduced them to a problem. And that violates their sense of dignity and who they are. And we don't know that we're doing that because it's so much a part of our culture that we kind of let it slip in. But let's remember what T.S. Eliot says, Suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care. So when we care, we move into an environment not of a wasteland, But the beautiful thing of every individual that you see is God has a much, much bigger view of what's going on than we ever will. And I love what he says. He talks about this rose garden. Peterson says, when you go into a rose garden, you don't trample down all of the roses to clean it up. He says, what you do is you walk carefully between the roses and pitch out the beer cans but you leave the rose intact. There's a danger in care. The danger in care is that you violate and actually end up doing harm rather than doing good. Teach us to care and not to care. Now, what does not caring have to do with caring? Not caring has to do with that sensitivity to know when and how And I promise you that this couple would not have sought our help had we not been doing our screening. In fact, he was mad at me once because I pointed out all the stress and he says, look at the Apostle Paul, who are you to talk to me about stress? But they turned because they knew we cared. Okay? Now, something else frightened me to death because I saw this movie and I didn't know what she'd said. I thought, whoa, she's not coming for my medical care. She was stabilized on drugs. She was doing well. She was coming to hear the voice of God. Whoa, I can promise you, I almost didn't want to see her again. Imagine that expectation. So she showed up, and I gave her this poem. She picked up teach us to sit still. She says, that's what I've been doing. And somebody in the church says, what a restrictive life you're living. She said, is it okay? And I says, yes, it's okay. It's okay to sit still until you hear that voice of God. And so, as much as it's important to know how to care, It's more important that we care and that we care for these friends of ours in a manner that is consistent with the God that we're serving. And so remember, Elliot, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. We heard that in the lecture this morning. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. And I've used up my time. I've apologize for not having it more interactive, but some of you know more on the inside than you're willing to reveal on the outside. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them, but you're also dismissed to go where you want to go.